Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Aaron. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, welcome to Riverwood. Glad you are here. Uh, we are in the middle of a series here at Riverwood called His Story. And so far, we've been spending a lot of time in the Old Testament, and we've been seeing how many of these stories have been allusions and prophecies to the coming of Christ. And we've been seeing how Jesus is that true and better, the, the true and better Adam, the true and better Abraham, the true and better David, much of the things we just saw in that video. But today, we make a turn. So far in this series, we've been looking at the Old Testament, dipping into the new to see how Jesus fulfills much of what the Old Testament talks about. But today we make a turn in that we now are going to spend a majority of our time in the New Testament and will occasionally dip back into the Old. And today as we look at the arrival of Jesus, we're going to see exactly that. We're going to spend our time in Matthew and Luke, and we will dip back into the Old Testament and see how they point to Jesus. But before we get to the arrival of Jesus... I want to talk about the Lord of the Rings. How many of you have seen the movies for the Lord of the Rings? Okay, yeah, quite a few hands. All right, so you're familiar with the story. Okay, hands down. How many of you have actually read the books? Okay, yeah, I've read them to each of my children, and I actually read them before I read them to my children, which dawns on me that that means I've read them five times, which makes me sound really, really nerdy. And then you realize I own the extended versions, and you're probably not really concerned about me and my mental state. Um, but in The Lord of the Rings, uh, the, I think the movies do a decent job of capturing the essence of the book. They, they seem to fulfill the, the, the story well. However, there are a few differences, especially the beginning. It, the movies assume that you haven't actually read the books. And so the movies take time to kind of set the stage. And in a very Peter Jackson, you know, Hollywood-esque way, they capture it, you know, with this big grand music. It's really somber and serious, and, and it just kind of grips you right away. Tolkien, he went old-fashioned. When he wrote the book, he starts in the Shire. The, the Shire was the home of the hobbits in Middle-earth. And it, Tolkien thinks that you really want to know what hobbits are. So he spends an inordinate amount of time telling you about the culture and the physical stature and their, their love for peace and how they have hairy feet and how they can walk really, really quiet and how they love beer and smoking and gardening. And I mean, he just goes on and on and on about these hobbits. But as you read it, it's just this really calm, kind of peaceful scene. And then Tolkien brings in a disruption. It, it starts really, really small. Some people don't even notice it at first. But as the story gets going, it starts dawning onto them. This disruption is so big. This is the story. And the disruption is a ring. To us, rings are pretty innocuous. I mean, they're really no big deal. Some of us wear rings for jewelry. Some of us wear them to indicate we're married. Uh, some people wear a ring that they've earned, like a Super Bowl ring or maybe a class ring, a graduation ring. But none of us live in the fear of rings. If you do, you probably need to go see a professional, right? They're not scary. But in Tolkien's world, rings, this one particular ring, wields amazing power. And suddenly, with the appearance of this ring, we move from the serene scene of the Shire to now a dangerous journey that four hobbits go on to try to rid Middle-earth of this one ring. Your life is a lot like a Tolkien story. 
your life has contained disruptions. Some of them small that appear to be big. Some of them actually good. Like the day you met that special someone who'd one day become your spouse. That was a good disruption. Or or the day you got your first real job. Or or maybe for you, the disruption was when when you went on your first missions trip and God did something in your heart. You were disrupted. These bettered your story. But there are some disruptions that they feel like they actually wreck your story. Like when your spouse cheats on you or says, I'm done with the marriage. When a a loved one unexpectedly dies or the job that you thought was a dream job is suddenly done, it's gone, you're fired. Or, Or maybe it occurs when you're at the doctor and you get the fateful news. Those are the disruptions that we hate and they change our story. But it goes without saying, disruptions are part of life. If I'm honest, today I hoped to disrupt you. I hope it's a good disruption, but I live with this core conviction that the gospel of Jesus is to disrupt us. That he did not arrive on this earth just to make our life a little bit better so that we could go to school and get a degree and get a spouse and get a job and get a house and get some debt and get a car and get kids and all this stuff. Those are good things, but they're not the best things. I think Jesus didn't come to just give us a little bit of a better life. I think he came to give us an utterly different life. And that, so that means that his arrival is to disrupt us. So my prayer today is that you'll be open to this disruption. That no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, that you will sense God say something to you that will help you go a little deeper with him. So let's pray. Father. As we get ready to uh, jump into this topic, uh, look at the scriptures, I'm asking that you would disrupt us. Lord, I'm just going to ask that you start with me and that you'd move this into my church family, that you would help each and every one of us to see Jesus very vividly. And as we look at his arrival, that it would disrupt us in a way that we would realize that you are God, you are good, you're in control, and we can trust you. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to see this afresh, that we would see the love of God and the sovereignty of God in a yet new way. So, Father, be our teacher today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think that the arrival of Jesus is a little bit like the ring in Tolkien's story. Uh, the, the ring, it's, it's small. Uh, when you actually meet the ring in The Hobbit, all you know is that it can make you invisible. And that seems to be all that we know about it. It's kind of small. Well, Jesus on the surface seemed small, if you will. His name, Jesus, uh, it just transliterated to be Joseph. Uh, I, I, I mean, not Joseph, sorry, Joshua. I, I've got a nephew named Joshua. You know, it's, it's a very common name. Most of you know Joshua. We've got a Josh sitting right here. It's a common name. Good name, but a common name. Also, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, a a small town. It it didn't have a very good reputation. It was small. It was nothing. And and then he grew up to be a carpenter. Uh, It it wasn't like a remarkable thing. It wasn't like he was a king in Jerusalem on the throne. No, he's the carpenter in Nazareth. On the surface, Jesus appeared small. 
And, and yet, as you go through Tolkien's story, you start realizing this ring is not small. This ring changes everything. Because when you really look at the story, you start realizing the ring's actually the central character. And that's hard to admit, because Tolkien put in some really iconic characters. I mean, you could start talking to all these guys in the story, but yet it would be possible to take some of them out and the story to kind of still be there. But if you remove the ring, the story collapses. It's done. Well, it's the same with Jesus. Jesus changes everything. You remove Jesus out of the scriptures, it all falls apart. It all hinges upon him. And so that's why his arrival into the pages of history is so key and critical. And today we're going to look at three points, three things that I think should disrupt us in a good way to actually encourage us to trust God and to follow Jesus. And so the first point I want to talk about with the arrival of Jesus is that it shows that God has a plan, that God has a plan. How many of you uh, are familiar with the website Kickstarter? Okay, a few hands, but uh, quite a few didn't, didn't go up. Kickstarter is a website where they uh, do um, uh, kind of like a campaign fundraising, but they crowdsource it. And so you might get a musician or a filmmaker or maybe some company that wants to put together some product, and they just don't have the capital to either make the album or to put the film together or, or you know, to put their product on the market. And so it, it's kind of like raising the funds ahead of time. So people will buy the album before it's actually made because they really like the artist and they, they want this, this music made. Or, or you know, they want to see this film or they want to get this certain product. So they'll give the money, then that capital is used to make the product or whatever it is, and then the, those who donated can receive it. The number one uh, campaign ever on Kickstarter history was from a company named Pebble. They announced that they were going to release a watch. And this is before the Apple's iWatch and, and a bunch of these other smartwatches. And they said that it would sync with your phone and the, you, know, you could make all sorts of customized changes on it. And it was so big that when uh, Pebble said we were hoping to raise $500,000 so that they could mass produce it and put it out, they actually raised over $20 million. Now, do you think Pebble would have been able to raise $20 million if they had put a video on their Kickstarter page that said this? Hey, thanks for checking out our Kickstarter page. So glad you're here. We hope you donate. We've got this really cool idea for a watch. We're not quite sure what it's going to look like, and we don't exactly know what it's going to do, but it's going to be cool. Trust me. So give us your money. No. No one would give to something like that. Why? Because there doesn't appear to be a plan. The fact that the, uh, the Pebble could show, here's what our watch looks like, here's what it'll do, here's what you, the, the functionality is, suddenly people were like, that's amazing, take my money. You know? And they raised $20 million. When there's a plan, it helps to bring some confidence. As you look at the story of the arrival of Jesus, and especially as you look through the Old Testament, you see God had a plan. And God didn't just kind of put up this generic video of, hey, one day I'm going to send this Messiah. Not quite sure what he's going to look like, where it's going to come from. Not sure when it's going to happen, but it's going to be cool. Trust me. No, as you go through the Old Testament, he is specific. He starts telling you more about him. He starts telling you where he's going to come from. He gets very specific. And in fact, it starts in the very first prophecy ever. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says that this Messiah was going to be male and born of a woman. But he starts getting more specific as time goes on. Some of the things he talked about was that this Messiah would be from the line of David. David being the most famous king in all of Israel's history. That this Messiah would be like David. 
Uh, the prophet Isaiah told us that this Messiah would be born of a virgin. And then in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we see that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, even naming the town. And this is just four. There are more. God is very specific. And as you start putting this all together, you start realizing God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. And that should give us confidence in God. But you need more than that. You need more than just a plan. What you need to do is actually execute the plan. And that's what we see in point two. Point two is that God is in control. God is in control. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter two, the famous Christmas passage, Luke chapter two. Don't care if it's a digital Bible or a paper Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke two. As you're turning to Luke two, I want to tell you about Bill. Now, Bill is a good friend of mine, known him for a number of years, but Bill is not his real name. I'm hiding him because I'm going to share something a little bit unflattering about Bill, which I don't want to do because I really like Bill. Bill is an optimist. Bill is positive. Uh, he, he's enthusiastic. He, he's a great husband, a, a fantastic father. Uh, if Bill was part of Riverwood, He's the type of guy who would be here. We start set up at 7.30. He'd be here like 7.20. He'd have a coffee in one hand, probably muffins for everyone else. He's an incredibly generous guy. He'd be the most enthusiastic guy. He'd be bouncing around here, happy, positive, and ev all of us would love him. We just, we all would love Bill. We would wish for a dozen Bills a part of Riverwood, all right? Bill is an awesome, awesome guy. But Bill's biggest flaw is that he is a dreamer. Now, I hate saying that because I believe the world needs dreamers. I, I'm a bit of a dreamer. But the problem with Bill is that he dreams but never works to fulfill the dreams. There was a time in life where I worked really closely with Bill for a number of weeks. And sometimes he'd come in and he'd say, hey, I got this great idea. And he'd share it. Eh, it really wasn't that great of an idea. Right? But that, that's okay. I mean, I have dumb ideas. I just am thankful I have people in my life who say, Aaron, that's a dumb idea. You know, but, but Bill sometimes would have great ideas. I mean, absolutely awesome ideas. And I'd be like, Bill, that's phenomenal. We got to do that. You've got to help make that happen. And yet week would go after week after a week and nothing would happen. And I would be so frustrated because Bill would already be on to the next dream. Aaron, I've got a great idea. Nothing ever seemed to get done. God had a plan that he actually executes the plan. And we see that so vividly here in Luke chapter 2. Join me in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, if you've ever watched the... Uh, Peanuts Christmas story, you've probably heard that read by Linus out on the stage. I mean, we hear this every single Christmas, but I want us to stop and reflect on it for a moment and to really ponder it. We heard in point one that in Micah 5.2, God said that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. However, the virgin that he chose to give birth to this Messiah 
is living in Nazareth with her fiancé, Joseph. So how in the world is God going to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem? Oh, got an idea. I'll have the Caesar back in Rome call for a census to register for the census. You have to return back to the hometown of your family ancestry. Well, that meant that everyone around the Roman Empire is now having to pack up their stuff and make a move if they've moved away from that home. Well, that includes Israel, which means it includes Joseph, who is now living in Nazareth, away from his lineage of of David, who was from Bethlehem. So that means he's got to pack up his stuff. Well, he's now got this, uh, you know, young, pregnant uh, girl. He's got to take her with him. And they've got to walk this entire distance. And and if I've never been pregnant, I know, big surprise. Um, But I cannot imagine that being pregnant and walking however many hundreds of miles would be all that comfortable. And they're wearing these thin little sandals This sounds miserable. And and all the pictures I've seen, they show like Mary riding on a donkey. And that doesn't seem much better to me. Like the bouncing and and everything. I mean, no wonder she went into labor when she did. You know, it's like really uncomfortable. And then they get to Bethlehem. And there's no space. Because everyone else has come in too. And because they had to travel a far distance, they're one of the last ones there. And so there's no space. Well, because she's pregnant, someone has pity on him. And so obviously they give him some sort of stable because it tells us that she lays her baby in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. Clearly, God is in control to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth over to Bethlehem. And we could go on. We could look at a number of other things. We could see in like Matthew 1, there's a point where Joseph thinks that his fiance has been unfaithful to him because she's pregnant and he's never been with her. And yet God, through a dream, says, this is the Messiah. This is through the Holy Spirit. So he stays with her. He marries her. And then after Jesus is born, through a dream, God says to Joseph, Herod and his soldiers are going to come and kill all of the babies under age of two. Get out of Bethlehem. Head to Egypt. And so he does. God was clearly in control. And yet, even though God was in control, a lot of it was uncomfortable. You see, we should be able to take point one, that God has a plan, and take point two, that God is in control, and put those two together, and it should actually comfort us. It should give us peace. It should put us at this place of, oh, okay. But so often, it doesn't. Because sometimes God's plan disrupts us. And we find ourselves living in chaos, as if some Roman uh, uh, a Caesar has called for a census, and now suddenly is, everything is in chaos. And we find ourselves saying, God, why are you doing this? Why did you let my spouse leave me? Why did you let me get fired? Why are you letting my health be bad? Why are you giving me this type of relationship with my child? Why did you move me to Iowa? Why are you doing these things? I thought you loved me. I'm sure Mary and Joseph maybe had some moments. I mean, you you get visited by an angel who says, you're going to have the son of God. Wow, this is going to be awesome. Uh, Yeah, but you're going to have to travel all this distance. You're going to have to give birth away from your family in a stable in, you know, this dirty area with a bunch of animals. And then you're going to have to hightail it out of there. You're going to have to go live in Egypt for a number of years, away from everyone else, away from your own people. And I wonder if they had moments where they're like, God, what are you doing? Because it seemed that God had a plan. And God seems to be executing that plan. But sometimes the execution of that plan sure makes me uncomfortable. But you see, God loves you so much. His goal is not to just make you happy. His goal is to make you holy. 
You see, God wants to take the image of himself within you that's been marred by sin, and he wants to restore it. And that makes you look more and more like Jesus. God's goal is to help you love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So that means when the crud of life comes, whether it's getting fired from your job or a health issue or a relationship issue, or you've got a hurricane dumping tons of water on you, and you find yourself wanting to cry out, God, why are you allowing this to happen? God is saying, trust me, I'm actually going to use this for your good. The Apostle Paul actually says this in the book of Romans. When he wrote this letter uh, to the church in Rome, he said this. We know it as chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Did you hear it? All things. The good disruptions and the bad disruptions. He's going to use it for your good. And if you keep reading, if you keep on going with verses 29 and 30 and 31, you start seeing it's God saying, I'm doing this for your good. It's to make you more and more like Jesus. Now, I got some friends who really struggle with the sovereignty of God. They struggle at trusting God. So sometimes it's because of something that happened in their childhood and things just felt out of control or, they, or, or they've been really burned in relationships and so that they would say it out loud, I have trust issues. And so they don't trust God. But if you find yourself scared of the sovereignty of God, then you do not understand the love of God. When you start realizing just how much God loves you, then you will trust him even in the hardest of moments. Even when you find yourself saying, God, I don't understand. And he's saying, I didn't ask you to understand. I'm asking you to trust because I have a plan and I'm in control. And when you really make that theology the core of who you are, you can actually find yourself having a peace that surpasses understanding. I'm not telling you that it's going to make sense but I am telling you that God is not going to let the crud of life be wasted. He loves you too much to let you just go through it for nothing. He's going to let you go through it because he's going to do something better and bigger in you so that he can do something bigger and better through you. That right there is enough to disrupt us. But remember, I said I had three points today. And the third point is this, that God is knowable. That God is knowable. This past week, my family had the privilege of honoring my wife, Leanne, as last Friday was her birthday. And our family tradition is to, when it's the, a person's birthday, when we sit down for a meal, we will pray for the birthday person. And we each will do it. Normally, it's, you know, we pray one thing for the person, and we go around, and then we enjoy our food. But it seems that every year it's Leanne's birthday, the prayers get long longer, like our food's getting cold, and I, I've come to appreciate eating cold food on Leanne's birthday because it means my children are saying a lot of things that they appreciate about their mom. They're so thankful that this woman is in their life. And after 23 years of marriage, I still find myself in awe that God would give me such an incredibly talented, beautiful woman to say yes to a nerdy little guy like me. I, it, it's just, it's remarkable. But I'll, I'll be honest, we haven't had 23 years of honeymoon. There have been seasons, days, where we just aren't in sync. 
And it isn't because one of us is being a jerk. Okay, maybe I am. But, you know, we're not intentionally being jerks. You know, and it isn't because, you know, uh, uh, one of us has really, you know, done something wrong. You know, it, it's usually just life. You know, we've discovered that having four kids has kind of added a certain level of chaos. And then when you open your home and let other people come and live with you, it just kind of adds to the chaos. It's a good chaos, but chaos nonetheless. And then we are stupid and go, okay, yeah, God wants us to start a church. And so that gets thrown on top of it. And so life is just full. And so we find ourselves often having conversations that Leanne will just call transactional. Things like, hey, I need the van on this day because I have this on my schedule. Oh, we got to make sure the kids get here. Oh, hey, can you call this person? Can you take care of this? We need this done. And it's just all these things. I'm quite sure you understand what I'm talking about. Well, what we discovered is when we live like that for a number of days and weeks and months, we just kind of become more like roommates rather than spouses. And so we sometimes just need to hit the reset button. And so for us, a reset is a date or, or maybe going away to a bed and breakfast. We just, we got to get away from all the stuff. And yes, sorry, we have to get away from the kids. You know, we just need to go and be us again. You know, sometimes as we slide into the booth at the restaurant, the conversation at first, it, it's still kind of awkward because we've been living in this transactional state for so long that that's kind of where we start. And so we end up talking about the kids and the various things, you know, with Riverwood or, you know, different things going on in life. But eventually it happens. We start shifting back to conversations about life and our marriage and God and what he's doing in us. And suddenly a meal ends and we walk out hand in hand, best friends again. How does that sort of change happen? It's by being together. It's by being with each other. And that's what Matthew tries to show us in the arrival of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, and he says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But Matthew isn't comfortable just stating from Isaiah. He, he wants his readers to fully understand. So he adds a little parenthetical thought. He's got to define Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, God had a plan, and he was going to execute that plan because he was in control. But that plan included himself, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, coming down to earth, taking on human flesh to be God with us. And by him coming, it was kind of like him taking us out on a dinner date so that we could see and hear and experience the love of God. It was to develop our trust in him. It was to help us get back in sync with him. Because of sin, we are spiritually disconnected. But through Jesus and his coming, because we see God with us, we come back in sync and we understand the heart of our God and our relationship is restored. That is what Jesus' arrival means. It is to disrupt us. It's to show us the sovereignty of God, that God has a plan, and he's going to execute that plan because he's in control. But it also shows the love of God because he came to be with us. And that should disrupt us. That right there should disrupt us from our selfishness. 
that Jesus, the Son of God, would say no to his heavenly throne for a time, to come down and live among us, to be with us, knowing full well that doing so meant he was going to go to a cross, die an excruciating death on our behalf, so that our sin could be paid for, washed away, and we could come back into a relationship with our Creator, who loved us so much that he became God with us. So it should disrupt our selfishness. It should disrupt our relationships. It should disrupt the way we interact in our marriage. It should disrupt the way we parent our kids. It should disrupt the way we interact with our coworkers. It, uh, it disrupt the, inner way, the way we interact with our neighbors. The arrival of Jesus should disrupt how we spend our money, what we eat and drink, how we spend our time. It should disrupt how we view others. It should disrupt how we view ourselves. It should disrupt the way we live. It should disrupt the way we love. Because you see, the arrival of Jesus was not to come just to give us some warm, fuzzy Christmas feelings. The arrival of Jesus was designed to disrupt us. And it wasn't just to disrupt history. It was to disrupt your story. The question is, how are you letting the arrival of Jesus disrupt you? So, Father, I just pray right now that we would wrestle with that question. That you would help each and every one of us answer that. How are we allowing the arrival of Jesus to disrupt us? God, there are some people in this room that they have heard this story so much. They feel like they have it memorized they know it forwards and backwards, and it's almost put a callus on their heart and their mind. So God, I just pray right now that you would lovingly disrupt them. That they would see that the arrival of Jesus is to just help them see your love afresh. God, there are some people in this room who are going through something really, really difficult. And I pray that today they would see that through the arrival of Jesus, that you are God, you are good, you are sovereign. It means you have a plan, that you are, you are executing that plan because you're in control. But you're a good God. And we see that through the coming of Jesus. It's through him that we see your love displayed. So God, I pray that you'd help them to trust you. That you'd flood them with a peace that surpasses understanding. God, we may not always understand why something is happening. But Lord, help us to trust you in what you are doing. God, I pray for anyone here today that has never bowed their knee and their heart before you. And they've never dedicated their life to following you. That as they hear this message today, something's happening inside. It's like a, a light bulb going on and, and they suddenly feel like they're starting to get it. That this story of Jesus coming to earth wasn't just so we could open presents every December. That the coming of Jesus was so that he could ultimately go to a cross and die for us. This was your plan, and you were in control. So God, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, who went through the cross for us because there was joy waiting for him on the other side. And so no matter what we are going through, if we are going through our own chaos, going through our own cross, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus because there is joy on the other side. 
So God, I just pray that you would disrupt us. Disrupt me. Disrupt my church family. Disrupt us in a way that it changes us and it changes our neighborhoods and it changes our families and it changes Waverly and it changes Iowa and it changes the world. God, this world desperately needs people who will go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Would you make us that people? So God, help us to be Jesus-centered, to see that the arrival of Jesus into the pages of history is to also arrive into the pages of our story. So God, I pray that the person who has never bowed their knee before you right now, that they would pray, Father God, I realize that I am a sinner that I have been living my own way. But I now give my life to follow you because you, Jesus, gave your life for me. Father God, I ask that you would restore within me the image of Jesus so that I might go and do what you've called me to do. So Jesus, we say thanks. Thanks for coming. Thanks for dying. Thanks for rising again. Thank you for calling us to follow you. And it's in your name we pray to our Heavenly Father. Amen.